The Big Footy Port Adelaide podcast is proudly sponsored by New Vision. My team, Kanda, power. I love the power. power, power. I love the power. power, power. G'day everyone, Mac 19 here and this is the Big Footy Port Adelaide podcast coming to you live on Port Fan Radio. Joining me in the co-host chair once again, we have the lovely Porsche. How are you going? Oh, I'm going very well, Macca. Very excited about this weekend, and I'm fired up because I've done some journalism, which I'll talk about later. Nice. I like it. I like it a lot. And back on the podcast is Fort Support. Hi, Macca. Hi, Porsche. Happy to be here. So excited. Great to have you back Big on. Game. Huge game. Big game. Massive oh. game. Everything's on the line. It is. Last game of the year, unless there's a miracle and... You know, Hawthorne have been drug cheating or something. Never <laughs> Wouldn't we need about four clubs to be drug cheating? Knowing our luck, we will lose this week. Geelong will overtake us and then someone will get banned from the finals and they'll go in instead. <laughs> that would sum up our season perfectly, I think. I suppose. It is very sad we're not playing finals this year. It is the last game. I guess, um, you know... I. Not really even sure where to start with this one. I mean, might as well go straight into the preview. You know, it's the 23rd and final AFL round for 2015. Port taking on Peel Thunder at Adelaide Oval this Saturday afternoon. Yes, it's the first time we'll be playing Peel Thunder. It's, uh, you know, their last match at AFL level was the final round of 2013 when they lost to a 16th place St Kilda. So I said, I don't really even know where to start with this. This was meant to be one of the showcase matches of the season for us. You know, two teams likely top four, quite possibly playing off for a spot in the top two and therefore two home finals. You know, in the end, Frio have won the minor premiership. They can't be overtaken whilst we've had a pretty poor year and they're going to miss the eight. And, you know, now what was meant to be one of the biggest games of the season has turned into pretty much a glorified practice match. Um, yeah, it has, but uh, it doesn't mean it won't be worth watching. And we certainly have some opportunities to cause some trouble if we want to, which is nice. Um, I think that if we want to just... If we if we hate Fremantle as much as I do, and we know Chad Wingard hates Fremantle because he always kills them, um, <laughs> then I think that we have a really great opportunity to play a physical game we've been sort of working on the last few weeks. They're a good team to test it against, and if we... We could either focus on the rookies, which would probably win us the game, which we don't care so much about, or we could rough up the remaining senior players and let the rookies do what they want because we can probably control them with our uh, second 11 in the side. Um, but, yeah, it could be a good game. Um, and also, I think the important thing, like, they've got three debutants for Fremantle, so there's going to be three guys that are hyped up and excited, and there's going to be a bunch of other players that think they're on the edge of a premiership, so they need to perform. So I think it'll oh, be a absolutely. real... It'll be a real mix for Fremantle's players, I think. Like, the ones that know their first team, they'll probably be just doing enough. And then there'll be the ones that are on the edge that'll actually probably be pretty desperate. And that gives us some real challenges in matchups because we obviously haven't had a lot of exposure to a lot of those players uh, as far as opposition scouts. Uh, and their structure might be a little bit different to how they usually are and it could be a real challenge. So I think that this is a really good test for Port to... Um, the main thing we think has caused our downfall this season is getting ahead of ourselves. And right now... Every one of the Port players right now is saying what you just said, Macca. They're saying, oh, look, this is going to be a big game, but now it's a dead rubber uh, against a team that, yeah, okay, they're right at the top, but they don't care about this match. And so this is where we find out where the Port are actually capable of sustaining their own motivation to win these sorts of games, even though there is no simple motivation for them to do it. And it will just require a lot of focus and just getting at the win anyway at a time when 
maybe it doesn't matter all that much because these are the games that we've struggled with in the past. So um, if this will tell us a lot about the side, I think, this week. Yes. No doubt. I just want to run through some names who will be missing from the Frio lineup this week. Um, <laughs> and they are Daniel Pierce, Luke McFarlane, Lee Spur, Stephen Hill, Michael Johnson, David Mundy, Aaron Sanderlands, Matthew Pavlich, Chris Mayne, John Griffin, and Cam Sutcliffe. So it's a, it's a pretty fair group of players. They've left a couple of senior players in there, um, namely Lockie Neal, um, Michael Barlow, uh, Clancy Pierce. He's played a lot of footy. Nick Subin, Tendai Mazungu, Zach, Duff, uh, Zach Dawson's at, uh, at fullback, Paul Duffield, Garrick Ibbotson. So they, they've mainly kept their defence intact, and they've mainly rested their midfield and some of their forwards. Yeah, um, the, well, I mean, that's really what you do if you want to have a bare-bones side, isn't it? Just keep your defenders there so they have a bit of touch for the most part and just rest your forwards and your midfielders as much as you can. So there's not really anything exciting about that. Um, I suppose what it means, as far as I can tell, in the rucks, we've no longer got Aaron Sandilin, so it means Paddy Ryder will go up against um, Zach Clark, which I'm not worried about at all, quite honestly. I think we'll, we should be all right there. Um, Jack yeah. Hanneth as well. He's, uh, oh, Jack Hanneth, yeah. Right. Well... Yeah, okay. So Sorry. That's it. That would be a challenge. Yeah. So I think that, you know, it's... it's we, we should win. We should win, but we've got to win, so... Oh, yeah, we, we definitely um, should win without any any doubt. We should absolutely smash them off the park. It's, I'd, I'd be disappointed if we don't come away with a, with a huge, huge win. And as Porsche was saying... It's really going to test our players in terms of their ability to maintain focus and self-motivate against an opposition where there's probably going to be only a handful that are really desperate to prove that they're worthy of Final 22 selection in the first week of finals. So, yeah, yeah. looking at the team, you can see they've kept their defence intact, but they've completely gutted their, their midfield. Their, their, the ruck is completely gone and there's yeah the forward lines practically new so it's it's really up to us to to embarrass them really mm. they've gone to the effort of um, upgrading two players from the rookie list in Jacob Ballard and Craig Moller so it wouldn't surprise me if we um, see two more changes because they're on the emergency list wouldn't surprise me if we see two more changes maybe someone like Lockie Neal or Michael Barlow go out of the side as a mm. late change and they really do end up playing a pretty bare-bones team out there. Well, it's actually three. I'm not sure who the third one is, but there was three that... Um, was oh, it might be Tanner Smith, maybe. Uh, Debutants is uh, Brad, Brady Gray, Connor Blakely, and Ethan Hughes. Mm. Yep. You know, really well-known names there. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> well, I'm actually interested to see Connor Blakely play and Lockie Weller as well. They're two players that I was pretty keen on uh, for the draft last year, so... Be interesting to see those two um, young studs run around. Um, outside of that, I'm not even sure if guys like Ed Langdon, Max Duffy, Brady Gray, and Ethan Hughes are actually real people. They sound like names uh, generated on some sort of computer. Yeah, no, I think it's um, part of the coterie package for Fremantle. It's instead of letting your kid do the toss-up of the coin, uh, you actually get to go and play in the final round side if they make the finals, which I think is probably a really good scheme. They could get a bit of money that way. So I'm, I'm guessing Phil Thunder don't actually have a game this week <laughs> in the Waffle. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. They'll be playing their cheer squad. That's <laughs> that's pretty much what they'll be doing this week. Yeah. So how do we feel about this? Do you think this is... Obviously, there was something written in the rules after Frio did this last 
time where it was, you know, the integrity of the game has to be kept intact and the AFL have given them the all clear to do this. They've given North Melbourne the all clear as well, which has caused a bit of havoc today across the AFL. Um, Do you think this is a good thing? Do you think this is a good look for the AFL? Um, I think that until they do things like have a rest week before the final season starts, um, the AFL doesn't really have a leg to stand on. So they could give every club a week off between the end of the regular season and finals, and that way every team is sufficiently rested for the next game. And then you might see less of this sort of thing because obviously, you know, with a two-week gap, you want to keep your players in touch because uh, you don't want it to be three weeks. That That is probably a bit too much for the most part. You know, you won't have that at any other time in the year, really. Yeah. Um, but as far as it being bad for the game, I don't think it is. Um, it's just a reality uh, of professional sport that you sometimes you do things to protect your best players. I mean, it's no worse than um, mm-hmm. deciding, oh, we've missed the final, so we're going to send all our players off to surgery. I mean, it's in that exact same boat, really. And it's not like tanking where you're trying to get a fancy draft pick and whatever else. It's completely... The only motivation to do this is because you want to win a premiership, and that is the ultimate goal of every AFL club. So if you want to stop a a club from doing that, you've really got your wires crossed, I think, if you're as an administration, if you decide you want to stop clubs from doing everything they can to win premierships. Do you think it's a bad look in terms of crowds, in terms of... um you know, sponsorship corporate packages that would have, you know, purchased tickets to this game thinking it's going to be a huge game and in the end, you know, we're going to be playing a Frio side which is basically a, a waffle reserves team. Um, I think that as far as that's concerned, it's really only a WA phenomenon and in theory it could become a Queensland phenomenon too uh, because of the travel. I mean, it's really, it's all about the travel and having to do that big leg big leg over to Melbourne or to wherever else uh, and then come back. And so the only time it's actually even going to be an issue is when Fremantle and or West Coast are in the top four. And it's happened this year, so it's obviously it's a big issue this year. In two years' time, it won't happen, so no one will care anymore. Um, so what's North Melbourne's excuse then? Um, North Melbourne's excuse, they've got a really good excuse, which is that if they win, they are less likely to play at home than if they lose. Um, it's You look at the ladder... If they win, then there's a chance they'll play against the Crows in Adelaide. But if they lose, they can't go up, they can't go down. Richmond won't go up, or or Richmond won't change, and they'll stay where they are. So it'll be a nice game in round one at the MCG, which is exactly what North Melbourne want, and they reckon they'd love their chances against Richmond there. So um, who gives a stuff about the Crows saying, oh, you know, we need the Roos to play a serious game? Well, no, no, you don't. It's nothing to do with the integrity of the game um, because the Roos are doing everything they should be for the integrity of the game, which is that they're trying to win a premiership and give themselves the best advantage possible to do that. So if the Crows have made stiff shit... I'm going to disagree with that. I agree in terms of Frio's position where no matter if they win or lose, they can't lose top spot. You know, they're locked in. They know who they're going to be playing pretty much. But with North Melbourne, it's almost tanking. It's almost doctoring the result of the match. Because, Uh as you said, if they win, there's a chance they might have to travel. They're, They're... possibly going to lose almost on purpose so they don't have to travel so they can stay in Victoria. I mean, I just don't see how the AFL has allowed that to happen in that situation. In all honesty, I don't think it's a, a, a big issue. It's if I think it looks bad on paper because you see all the names go out, but the reality is if, if North Melbourne played their full list, there's absolutely no guarantee they're going to play at the intensity you'd expect them to play as they played every other round this season because they know they know they're going to be uh, better off if they don't win. And it's the same thing with Frio. If Frio played their full team, there's absolutely no way they're going to come out 
and play like it's you know Port versus Frio round one. It's they're gonna play knowing that they're safe in the top spot. They want to look after themselves and get through the game. So it's I think it's just a, an on paper look as far as you know this uh, tanking and integrity issue goes because once they're out there, they're not going to mentally play at the same intensity. Mm. And it's the same in many respects. So I think I think it's been blown out of proportion to a greater extent. And you know how Crows supporters, ambassadors, they like having a, a little whinge when something doesn't go their way. And this is probably a, a good example of that. And look, there's another issue related to this, which is that if you put in a standard, how do you enforce it? Who's going to enforce it? Um, it'll become another one of these really borderline things that have a huge impact um, where the only reason someone will ever get pinged for doing, uh, like, resting players in round 23 or whatever else is if there is a big enough media hullabaloo about it, um, which means, again, it'll be one of those things that advantages Victorian sides and disadvantages those outside of Victoria because it won't be administrated all the time. It won't come up very often at all. Um, it's just... I don't see that you could have any sort of ruling in the league that would be uh, fair and well-administered. I don't think it's possible with the league we have. It's not. I think it's pretty straightforward in that you can allow this if your position on the ladder won't change if you win or lose. If there is the possibility that your position on the ladder will change if you win or lose and you, and you end up resting three-quarters of your team, you shouldn't be allowed to do it. Yeah, but, but that's, that's just my opinion. But that's the thing. Like, where do you put the line? Like, you say, oh, if you rest five players, six players, seven players, eight players, what about players with injuries, you know? It's not hard to make up some injuries for your players that are getting rested for a week. We've done that. Every club's done that, you know? Um, yeah, this is what North Melbourne did today because they've listed ankle, leg, back, you know, against yeah. all these players that are being rested. Exactly. It'll be exactly the same sort of thing as, you know, when players try and get uh, the ball out of bounds but try to make it look like they tried not to. Uh, it won't be convincing for anyone. People will still bitch just as much about it, except that the only difference is that any enforcement on that rule will be enforced inconsistently. Um, I don't think it would improve things to start saying, hey, you can't do this. Yep. Well, let's talk about Port Adelaide for a little bit and talk about the changes to our side. Um, Gus Monfries and Aaron Young have been omitted. Um, Jay Schultz and Jakey Need have come in. Um, Jay Schultz, this is possibly his last game for Port Adelaide Footy Club, which uh, for me is quite sad. Um, and Jakey Need has been brought back in um, after some family um, time off last week. Um, and I think, uh, according to the website today, it said that um, this equals the most amount of Aboriginal players in an AFL team of all time. Yeah, um, I'll talk about that second thing uh, shortly, but just on Schultz, like we're talking about Schultz potentially going to Fremantle if he's not at Port Adelaide. Um, what do you think is the purpose of bringing him in for this game? Is it to get a good trade or is it just to make him work for it? Or what do you think the reasoning is? Because if you think we need him, I don't know that we necessarily need him in the side this week. We could probably get by without him. Uh, what do you reckon? I think there's still a chance he'll stay. If, well, hopefully there's a chance that he'll stay, but if not, then and if the club know and if he knows that you know this might be the end, hopefully this is the chance that um, you know the supporters have their their chance to say goodbye to uh, one of our sort of unsung heroes who's uh, done a hell of a lot of good for the Port Adelaide Footy Club. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, I, I, look, I'd, I'd agree with that in part, particularly given we haven't made the eight. 
um, but we don't know he's going, so it doesn't, it's hard, I don't know, how do you make it a goodbye? It's just, might be his last game as a Port player, but we don't know. Um, he is also still our best forward, so <laughs> that's also yeah. probably why he's playing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, like, well, like so. I'm saying, I, if we're playing him this week and he's going to Fremantle, why would we be playing him? So does playing him this week mean that maybe we're keeping him, you know? I don't know. Well, hopefully he kicks 10 goals and they decide to give us a second round pick or something for him. So. <laughs> He'd be a free agent, wouldn't he? Surely. No, he's not a free agent. Not a free agent. Oh, okay. No. Oh, because he changed clubs. Yeah, okay. <clears throat> not unless uh, we delist him, then he becomes one, I think. But... Right. Oh, fair enough. It's hard to imagine free offering us anything for him, and it's hard to imagine any other club picking no. him up in reality. If you go through all the clubs, it's pretty much only Frio that would really benefit from him. So even if he goes into the PSD, he can get that easily, I reckon. No, I disagree. There's a bunch of clubs that would benefit from Jay Schultz for a year or two. I mean, one I can yeah. think of is Melbourne, for sure. They'd love him. Put him alongside Jesse Hogan, and then his Jesse Hogan can play proper centre-half forward. Why not? Brisbane um, would love him uh, because they're going to be playing half a side next year. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Essendon. Yeah, Brisbane. Essendon, yeah. Yeah. I can't see any, any other club being that interested in him, but that's just... I'm sure he can fit into Essendon or even Melbourne, but Melbourne's got a very clearly defined youth path, and same with a lot of other clubs. I mean, Carlton's another one, especially if uh, if Henderson leaves and Cruiser leaves, then I'm not too sure who they're going to play out for. True. Yeah, yeah. True. there's definitely clubs out there that would be interested. And, yeah, and he said Melbourne's doing a youth path, but, I mean, if you're paying nothing for him, um, it's you'd rather have Schultz than Chris Dawes most days of the week, I would have thought, so... Um, but yeah, uh, anyway, the second part of it, this is this is my little rant, um, and as a preface to this, um, if you're a journalist listening to this, and we know that journalists read Big Footy, and I know we all had little ideas we've had about the club mysteriously appear as articles in the next few days, um, I don't care personally, and I don't think many of us do, but if you feel like stealing a story and doing the proper investigation, which I couldn't be bothered doing because I'm not being paid to do it, what I'm about to talk about, please do it, because it's actually something that I think is something we don't talk about and we kind of probably should. And so I'll start off, we're talking about uh, a nice little article on the Port LA website this week that talks about how this week will equal Fremantle's record for the most Aboriginal players in an AFL side, um, which is seven, which is um, Paddy Ryder, Chad Wingard, Jarman Impey, Carl Amon, Nathan Cracker, Brendan Archie and the returning Jake Need, according to the article. And that's great. And I remember when Fremantle set that record, because I think we had held... From memory, I think we had held or matched the record previous to that with, I think, six players. And I was like, oh, gosh, you know, they beat us. That's a real shame. Um, but I was really proud of that. I thought it was really great that Port Adelaide had such a strong tradition of um, playing Aboriginal players. Um, and so this, this record's been held in place for 12 years or 12 seasons. It's actually um, a little bit surprising that no one's actually got ahead, but here we are, we've matched it now. Um, now, when it originally happened, when Fremantle played the seven Aboriginal players on one side, you'd sort of think, yeah, this is really good. This is a, a sign of progress for Aboriginal players in the AFL. And certainly, that's how it gets sold every time something like this happens. It's how it's sold in Dreamtime round. Um, it's certainly how the club's selling it this week. Um, but there's a, a little bit of a reality as far as Aboriginal participation in the football industry, which is that they really only get a run as players. And I'll just demonstrate that. Um, a lot of these things, I haven't gone through and looked at everything, but... You just sort of need to do a little bit of head count, just mentally, and just sort of think, yeah, I can't think of any. So I'll just go through it um, by category. So at clubs, for example, um, 
we haven't had any that I know of, any Aboriginal head coaches either selected as head coaches or even talked about as potential head coaches uh, in a serious way. Uh, senior assistant coaches, so midfield forwards, the director of coaching. I don't think we really have seen uh, any possibly, or if, not, if, or if there have been some, very few in those roles. Um, Aboriginal health and fitness staff, two chief recruiters, list managers, club CEOs, senior executives, board members. So these are all really important roles at clubs and uh, you would think that given the number of Aboriginal players coming through the game and that a lot of these roles end up being former footballers that go into them, um, it's a little bit surprising that you that would be like, I can't think of any at Port Adelaide in any of these categories. Um, so we look at the AFL now, looking at the AFL uh, employment. Uh, AFL Aboriginal executives in a capacity other than the governance of Aboriginal football or Aboriginal community outreach. There's not any of those that I'm aware of. There's no Aboriginal member of the AFL Commission. And what are the qualifications for being on the AFL Commission? You just need to know a bit about business and there'd have to be people that do that. Uh, there's no Aboriginal member of the Match Review Panel. Um, this year, they've added four players, uh, for, sorry, four people, which is Luke Ball, Nathan Burke, Michael Christian, Brad Sewell. There's no Aboriginal member of the All-Australian Committee. And I'll go through the members of this. Some of them make sense and some of them you just think we didn't really need to do that. So Gillan McLaughlin, fair enough. Kevin Bartlett, Luke Darcy, Mark Evans, Danny Frawley, Glenn Jakovich, Cameron Ling, Matthew Richardson, Warren Treadray. Now, the only change that happened this year in this regard was Warren Treadray replacing Mark Rusciuto because we care more about state balance than we do about having Aboriginal representation selecting the All-Australian team. Um, they also picked the Rising Star along with Kevin Shan, which doesn't actually improve things at all. Uh, there's no Aboriginal member of the tribunal. Um, the chairman is uh, David Jones, members of John Hassett, Will Houghton QC, Andrew Tinney, Emmett Dunn, Michael Sexton, Wayne Schimmelbush, Richard Loveridge and David Pittman. And I think they added a couple of jury members this year, Daniel Harford, Shane Wakeland, Paul Williams. Nothing against any of those guys, but we're seeing a lot of the same thing here. There's no Aboriginal member of the Rules of the Game Committee, which is pretty much ex-players. Um, there's only been one VFL AFL Aboriginal umpire, and that's Glenn James, who technically wasn't actually an AFL umpire because he was between 1977 and 1984. Uh, and if we can get Jordan Bannister a run as an AFL umpire, I find it very hard to believe we can't find Aboriginal people that are interested in being AFL umpires. Now, next we look at AFL media, and we're going to deal primarily with commercial media because this is where there is no sort of mandate of representation. So there's no Aboriginal game commentators on commercial television, not on Channel 7, uh, not on Foxtel, like not regular ones that you have every week. Um, Aboriginal football show hosts, I know we've got the Marngrook, but uh, on the commercial stations, no, not at all. Um, are there any Aboriginal people in any, any non-guest capacity on any of these shows where it's not just a temporary thing? Um, and then we go to print media. So are there any Aboriginal full-time journalists for prime print media? And here I'm talking about things like the Herald Sun um, or the Age or I suppose potentially the Advertiser, if you're generous. Um, they're doing regular football article writing and not really invited to do one-off columns on Aboriginal issues. So, you know, articles by, I don't know, Adam Goods on zone defence, for example, as, a, as, as just, just a regular weekend thing. Um, I'd say there's very few of those. And if they are, then they're probably in uh, remote areas. Then you go to a local level, so you talk about at-ground presenters, like I think the old Voice of the G or whoever else at, at um, Port Games. You've got sporting ground managers, so the head of the SMA, the SANFL, Etihad Stadium, nothing there. Um, and then you get up to general at-ground staff. Now, at-ground staff at uh, Footy Park and Adelaide Oval is they're pretty much all just middle-aged white guys for the most part. Um, and really, we have to wonder why that is, because it's not a particularly high-skill role. 
Um, there's no statues of Aboriginal players at grounds that I'm aware of or stands named after Aboriginal players. I'm pretty sure there's not. Um, and then we get back to club level again. So this is really at the lower levels of where you can employ pretty much anyone. Um, no insult, but it's reality. So working at the Power Gear store, servers at the restaurant, cooks, ground staff at Albert and Oval, boot stutters, drink carriers, selling pies at half time. You know, do you see a lot of Aboriginal representation there? Now, we're a club that prides ourselves on it, um, but it's pretty clear, I think, that we can do more, and there's a lot more the AFL can do as well. Um, there are agencies that anyone can talk to. So there's Aboriginal Employment Strategy, um, who will actually help in placing Aboriginal people in the workplace, and they need the opportunity to do that. Uh, careertrackers.org.au, I've just noticed. Um, they're a bit, bit of a fancier website, but they seem to be doing something along those lines. Um, and there are a bunch of other programs around Australia as well, like Quantaf Foundation in Western Australia and all that sort of thing, uh, where they work on building character. But at the end of the day, what you really need, I think, in a lot of cases is just jobs. And that's something that the AFL industry, it's huge, absolutely huge, and they could certainly do better. Um, so what we really end up with is that the only area where there's a clear representation of Aboriginal talent is in the most competitive arena, where the only thing that matters is results. Um, you know, clubs tried being uh, mostly white, for a long time and at the end of the day they don't do that now not because they're being inclusive but because they are getting beaten by sides that are willing to draft anyone um, it's a bit similar to how you'd hear stories about um oh, i suppose people of different ethnicities in uh at war how you go oh you know he's all right he's okay because when you're having a war or something where the stakes are really high um you'll take anyone you don't care where they're from or you know what language they speak or what their culture is because you need bodies on the ground that can do the job and it's sort of the same situation I think uh, you can see as being uh, applied to Aboriginal players in that because they can rely, uh, because they can exhibit their talent in an area where there is an objective uh, result, um, that's the area where they're allowed to excel. Um, and then you've got to, you know, we talk about what's changed in 12 years. I mean, 12 years ago, we'd talk about things like uh, Aboriginal players going walkabout because they just wander off and we wouldn't hear anything about them. And we'd always talk about it as if it was something caused by the Aboriginal cultures and not actually caused by ours and our effect on Aboriginal cultures. Um, but, you know, this week we can look at our side and I know that 12 years ago I looked at our side and I thought, gosh, isn't it great that Port aren't racist like all those other clubs? But even we've got a long way to go. And as individuals, as a club, um, and certainly me included, um, it's a real shame and these little things where we have a little bit of positive media uh, I think there's a lot of questions that should be asked of the AFL at large and I would love it if someone did um, this is just a little podcast but it should be a bit bigger than that so that's my rant, I'm going to shut up now what do you guys reckon? That's just wow. about the best rant of all time I mean, <laughs> I'm not sure where to go from there that's that's wonderful it's, um, I didn't know that was coming that was brilliant Um I do agree with a lot of that. I think um, Port do quite a fair bit in terms of trying to employ um, Aboriginals. And but as as you said, I mean it's it's mostly in sort of Aboriginal areas. You know, guys like Wade Thompson, uh, Vandenberg, yep. um, Choppy. You know, those sort of guys looking after sort of the Aboriginals on our list and trying. But I, I do I do think we do a hell of a lot of work. Um, you know, with the Aboriginal Academy, I think we're working in the right direction in terms of that sort of thing. Um, but I do agree 100 percent that you know you look at sort of coaching staff, you look at media, you look at um, you know, executive level, and there is really just kind of no one. Yeah, there isn't. Um, 
and there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, so you look at the photo of the uh, Port players that are playing this week, and you look at um, what does it? MP Cracker, Need, Archie, Ryder, Amon, and Wingard. Now, statistically, if you look at any group of seven players in an AFL side, you can probably see one or two that will end up being an AFL assistant coach. Um, but you sort of in the back of your mind, I know I do, you look at that and you th- the, the mobile players and you think, oh, gee, I don't know, because it hasn't happened. We haven't had original assistant coaches, so we sort of are going back on what we do know, and we do know that there is a, a long history of Australians uh, thinking of Aboriginal players as talented and uh, white players as hardworking or intelligent. Um, which are two traits you want in a coach. Talent uh, on the football field doesn't matter as a coach, and so that's a strong bias I think we have as far as this goes. And not only is that a bias as far as selecting people, but unfortunately it also goes and imprints on Aboriginal people uh, as to how they are perceived. Um, And so you say, oh, look, we'd have Aboriginal coaches, but they don't want to do it. Same as, you know, 20 years ago, you say, oh, we'd have women executives, but they don't want to do it. And it's like, no, they don't want to do it. They've just been told, they don't want to do it because they've been told by everything around them their entire lives that they can't do it, so why try? Um, And that's something that really needs to be worked on. Um, We've got, what, Darren Burgess's Fitness Academy. Um, It'd be really nice if he started, not not saying he's doing anything wrong now, but it'd be really nice if we sort of put a special effort into encouraging Aboriginal uh, graduates of health and science uh, fields to get some training with these academies as a special entry. Um, and like I said, I mean, even just at the basic levels around the club, and there's no reason why we couldn't fill most of our, our, our lower level roles through um, uh, focused agencies that help employ Aboriginal people because that's going to help a lot in a really real way if people's first job is for the Port LA Football Club and that makes it a lot easier for them after that um, because it's taken seriously. There's a, lot, there's a lot more that Port can do. I agree that we've done a lot uh, or a reasonable amount and certainly more than a lot of AFL clubs, but just as far as what, how far back... The, the the industry is and how it hasn't really changed in the last 12 years. Looking forward, you'd love to think it's going to change a lot over the next 12, but there's not really any evidence that it will. Mm. I'm trying to think of any Aboriginal assistant coaches, and the yeah. only one I can think of is maybe Troy Cook. I have a feeling he was one for Frio ah, a few okay. years back, but I could be completely wrong there. And was that a senior assistant or was that like um, cause like midfield forward line defence? I think that was like a line coach, yeah. Yes, okay. Well, that, that, that'd be good. But again, that's pretty uncommon that we can't think of one off the top of our head. Um, no, that's, that's very true. Yeah, and so that's why I said it'd be really great to have a journalist, journalist did this because there's a lot of work and phoning of clubs and all that sort of stuff to do. Mm-hmm. And I don't do that. I'm not going to do that. It's not going to happen, but uh, it probably needs to be done. So why do you think this is? What? What reason do you think it is? Do you think it's a racial reason or do you think it might be an education reason? Do you think I'm lost as to why the reason might be for this? I mean, guys like Andrew McLeod, I mean, they've, you know, they're an assistant coach at SANFL level. There's no doubt that if Andrew McLeod wanted a job at AFL level, he'd get it at pretty much any club he'd, he'd walk into, I would think. Well, you'd hope so, but we don't know that he hasn't tried as well. Um, I think it's mostly racial. Uh, when we talk about education, um, a lot of these roles that I've talked about, so even little things like what the rules of the game committee, like what qualification do you need to that? Be an ex-player seems to be 100% of it. Same with the being on the All-Australian selection team, like all these little honours, that they are honours, but the effect they have on the league today is significant. You know, um, who's going to pick the, the All-Australian side? And like, okay, well, we only know this guy, we only know Cyril. 
because we don't know any Aboriginal players outside of playing with them. Um, so we'll give it to Cyril, we'll get him in there. Um, you know, that'll be it. And they'll think that's representation, but it's not representation because there's been no participation. Um, but it's, it's just basically a relic we have to deal with as a society. You know, this is only one aspect of it. The AFL, as industries go across Australia, it's one of the better ones. And, uh, yeah, it's just, this is just a huge hole that we have to deal with and we're not dealing with it. And it's not going to happen under Tony Abbott, I can tell you for sure. So, um, it's really tough to see that there's a bright future, but we, it doesn't only, it starts with being aware of how shit we treat people, really. I was going to say that's a, that's a great uh, a great rant, uh, Portia. I, I totally uh, agree with you. There is a, a lack of uh, indigenous uh, talents outside of the, the playing field and basically involved in running off the game, really, um, mm. at AFL level. And I think it's it's also a wider issue of uh, diversity. It's you know we we talk about um, indigenous round. We have uh, uh, multicultural round and all that sort of stuff, but it doesn't really seem to. It's almost like there's a barrier, and yeah. we just can't get past that, past that barrier. And we talk about it. We talk about it a lot. You know, AFLs. There's always a story about diversity or, or what's happening uh, with Indigenous uh, health and, and whatnot. But there seems to be this this barrier to actually getting to the upper echelons of the AFL system. And it's uh, yeah, it'd be great if we could. Um, Get past that, and and see some uh, see some indigenous uh, contribution for sure. Yeah, I've just had a look on the internet quickly, and there's currently two assistant coaches in the AFL that are, that are Aboriginal, and that's uh, Roger Hayden for Frio, who's in a development role, and Andy mm-hmm. Lovell, who works at Gold Coast. Yeah, there you go. So, and that's a development role, so uh, it's not the senior level I was talking about. But, yeah, I mean, that's something. It's a good start, um, but it's a matter of encouraging uh, people to go for those higher roles and there being a chance that they might even be selected for it, you know. When they don't think there's a chance that something will happen, it's very hard to work towards it. Um, it's really a challenging thing, and it's just something that we should at least be talking about because if we don't talk about it, nothing will happen. Yeah. Brisbane had Michael McLean, I think, as an assistant coach, as and uh, Chris Johnson as well. Okay. Um, so I guess there's been a couple, but you know, when you you think of it, that's uh, if, certainly from a percentage wise, it's uh, certainly very very low. Yeah, yeah you want to maintain a certain percentage at least, um, instead of having uh, just names that here and there. Um, there's there should be a, a target. Um, as far as uh, diversity goes, in terms of how many people from which backgrounds—not just indigenous backgrounds, but you know, females in the game and uh, other minorities are presented appropriately—is it maybe a desire issue? Because there's been a host of outstanding Aboriginal footballers who, you know, would have an incredible amount to give from a development role, from strategy, from tactics, you know, all that sort of stuff. Is it maybe a desire situation? Um, I don't think so, really. I mean, if it is, it's because of external influences, probably more than individuals. So we talked about, well, I talked about earlier how um, Aboriginal players in the AFL, they're there because they can prove that they deserve to be there because, through what they do. Um, as a coach, it, for example, it's really hard to prove that you deserve to be there because no one will give you any chances. Um, you've got to earn all of them. Like, you know, premiership coaches, they get no chances until they're pretty damn close to a premiership, realistically. Um, 
And so if you've got everything going against you and you're used to it your whole life, I mean, Adam Goods, you'd love to think Adam Goods would be a, a, a pretty good senior coach, but is it worth all the drama and the hassle that goes with it, you know? Um, there's just all these extra obstacles in place that you just sort of have to wonder, you know, if you've got your good money from playing and you think, yeah, I've got enough to just sort of have an okay life and do some shit that doesn't get me slang, uh, uh, sworn at all the time, then at a certain point you think, yeah, that'll do me. Thank you very much. Um, I think the desire is, if, the, if there is a lack of desire, I think it's artificially created by the uh, environment in which um, people come through. Because, like I said, 20 years ago, women don't want to be chief executives. Yeah, they do. They just couldn't. Yeah, that's... It's very fair. I think I think when you're talking about desire, it's you know you can apply that to anyone really. You know, there's plenty of uh, non-indigenous players that have really good careers that have absolutely no intention of coaching or anything like that, or they want to start their own businesses outside of football. Oh yeah. So it's yeah, but yeah, when you start talking about um, desire, you're really starting to um, attach labels in, in, in that sense and. Mm. It's really, yeah. I think Porsche's pretty much now that it's it's bloody hard to become successful as a senior coach. Bloody, bloody hard. And sometimes you just need a good break. And if if it's mm. hard for your stereotypical white Australian male, can you imagine how much more difficult it would be for an indigenous player that's just retired and trying to go through the coaching ranks. It's there's definitely the challenges there. It's, yeah, it's, if you get to senior coaches, I mean, you look through the names in the league right now. I mean, it's hard to even be a non-Anglo senior coach. Quite frankly, you can still be white and have a funny surname, and you don't get there. Um, <laughs> it's, it's it's really hard, you know. Well, now there's the the drive for the ten year. Um, Apprenticeship. There seems to be uh, the coaches that are hired these days usually have spent quite a bit of time in the system, and I think part of that is probably due to the um, the abject failures that we've seen with uh, favourite sons in recent history. So you know, you Ken Hinckley, ten years in the system. Bill Walsh was it, 10, 10 plus years in the system. Melbourne yeah. got Paul Roos, who's an ex, you know an established, experienced coach. So it's it's. It, 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 it just become harder, really. Especially yeah. with uh, the level was it the level four coaching certificate that's just come out as well that every coach has to has to complete thanks to thanks to Jimmy. Yeah, it's become harder, but also the fact that you need to be in the system for seven eight years before you get a shot. Um, well, that means that you've got to be good at having the right connections to keep a job or get multiple jobs for seven or eight years. And as we talked about, like we had. Um, Two Aboriginal assistant coaches, and I think from memory they were that you just mentioned, Macca, and I think from memory they both were working at the clubs they played for. Um, whereas you know you've got to work somewhere else. That's harder. I mean, it's hard to change companies if you're a regular person, like just you know a business person. It's hard to change companies because they don't know you. Um, it's easier if you're white and Anglo, definitely. Um, yeah, it's awkward and it's messy and it's a sign of Australian society, but yeah. There's no easy solution. No. I, th I think there should be a drive, though, Porsche. I think there should be a drive to have a certain uh, percentage represented and in working for the AFL and not just in uh, Indigenous community roles, yeah. but actual working for the AFL. And, and if you can get that up and running, then the chances of progression 
to the to the higher roles, you know, we, we end up bringing up a whole new issue in terms of promotions and whatnot. But let's just get to the point where we have a certain percentage involved first, and then we can we can build from there. And and yeah, yeah. so it, it really needs to start from uh, ground up, and that encouraging recent retirees to take these coach training courses and see if they have a passion for coaching. Yeah, there's and also that. But um, like you said, I mean, at the AFL level is where it should be stronger. So clubs, at least they have some argument that, you know, for football roles, you just want to get the best people available. And even though it's unlikely that just by coincidence, every best person is white, at least there's an argument for it. But at AFL House, there's no reason that they're not competing against anyone that you have to hire the absolute best, 100% fantastic person that has all the qualifications needed and all the connections needed already. You know, I don't buy that. They're not competing against anyone else in Australia at all, really. Um, they can hire whoever they want, and they clearly do with how they select their football operations managers in the past. Um, yeah. I guess, well, I don't think it's too far off that we might see an AFL coach that is Aboriginal. I mean, I think O'Loughlin, uh, Michael O'Loughlin might be coaching a... Um, Aside somewhere, and certainly Xavier Clark is coaching um, in the NEFL. So, I mean, they're, they're probably the two closest options, I would think, um, um, senior coach. So, I don't know. It's certainly something that I haven't really thought about before. So, that's um, I think it's great that um, that we've had this discussion, to be honest, because it certainly put it put it out there. And I do agree with you that um, you know maybe it should be a hell of a lot more talked about in the media. Mm. Particularly around Dreamtime Week. Yeah. I guess, I don't know, you've got to be wary of trying to make it look or sound like it's just a bit of a token effort for one week. That's true. But currently that's what it is, definitely. Hmm. Hmm. But to the point where we've got to take the next step. Yeah, yeah. Otherwise, it just becomes every, every year it's Indigenous Brown and... Oh yeah, we celebrate Indigenous culture, and there's an article about Indigenous contribution to the game, and then the next week we talk about it. Yeah, yeah, it's a fancy no, guarantee. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. We've had a, uh, a couple of tweets from Chris Hale who said uh, Porsche is spot on, considering it's about one in eleven players that are Indigenous, no representation elsewhere in coaching or media. And he also says that it's an indictment that Wayne Carey can get a gig in the media, but not one Indigenous ex-player is presented anywhere on radio or TV. Or certainly commercial TV. So. Oh, to be fair though, Wayne Carey is a champion of the game as much as he's an adulterer as well. So mm. I don't, I don't, yeah, I don't know why you pick Wayne Carey out. Oh, he's a bit more than an adulterer, fortune. Let's, let's be honest. <laughs> <laughs> he had a bit of a, a drug habit as well, and had a bit of uh, violence thrown in there. So yeah. okay, it was well, quite a. He fell off the he fell off the rails quite a. He's had a few issues, has um, King Carey. Right. Oh, fair enough. You know, and a, a hair job well, with teeth clean and a bit of makeup when he's back on Channel 7. So it's... <laughs> I, I, I enjoy watching him. Like, I think, he's, I think he's a great presenter, but the mere fact that he was given that opportunity, given all that history, it's, uh, you know, he's got to be thanking his manager every, every day. Oh, for it's I, I agree, but, I mean, if you're going to have a go at someone in the media, you'd have to have a go at uh, Hamish romping Wins McLaughlin, surely. Oh, well. <laughs> Jobs for the boys, Portia. That's all it yeah. is. Yeah. Anyone that edits their own Wikipedia page and then the nice. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
Well, let's get back to the game um, just briefly, just to get your thoughts on who might win and what the result might be, and also what the crowd might be. Uh, I think Port should win. Um, if we don't win, then you've really got to have Ken just go around and smack people at the back of the head because there's no reason why we can't. And if we don't, it means that we haven't focused, which at this time of the year, after this little bit of progress we've made late in the year, is just absolutely shameful if that doesn't happen, if we, if we lose this game. So um, we have to win this one. If we lose this one, it's awful. And I think we'll win by, say, six goals. Okay. Yeah, look, I mean, we've got our best side on the park. They're playing a reserves team. I mean, on paper, you would think that we should win very, very comfortably. Yeah. Um, whether we take it easy as, as it's the last game, there's nothing really on the line. I'm not too sure. But, look, I'd, I'd really love to see us win by 10-plus goals. I'd also love to see us go out there and smash them physically and, and mm. almost target the players that are likely to play finals football, make them hurt a bit, yeah. um, and maybe make Frio... You know, even rue this decision to make it or to turn it into a bit of a practice game. But I'd like to see, um, I'd like to see us win by over ten goals. And as a crowd, I'm really not sure what to expect. I mean, I'd love us to get over forty thousand. I'm not sure that that's going to happen. So I'm going to say maybe thirty-two and a half thousand. Yeah, I think I have to agree with you there, Maka. Like, I, I think you know the season's been shot for a few weeks now, and the boys have certainly played well in that time, even though. The season's been shot. There's nothing really there to play for. So I'm kind of hoping they continue with that that sort of form into into this game, particularly with a a waffle opponent. But yeah, I think we really we really have that duty. And I said at the start of the podcast, we really have a duty to absolutely embarrass them. So I'd, I'd want I'd expect us to absolutely smash them, go the go hard at the body, go hard at the ball. You know, 10, 10 plus, 12 plus, 14 plus goals, smash them. As, as for the attendance, yeah, I think we're going to struggle to get over 40. Mm. Uh, you know, at the end of the day, it's still pretty, it's not much of a, a pretty spectacle when Frio don't bring their big names. So I'm expecting somewhere between, you know, 35 to 38 to be my guess, but that's probably a bit optimistic, really. Alright, let's talk about the SANFL. It's finals time in the SANFL and Port are going to be playing West Adelaide for the second consecutive week in the qualifying final this uh, this Sunday, which is Father's Day. And we will be playing for the right to face off against Woodville West Torrens in the second semi, um, who finished a couple of games clear on top of the ladder. Uh, last time we met against uh, West Adelaide in a final was the 1998 prelim final, um, which saw Port Adelaide win by uh, 77 points in the wets um, on their way to a, a wonderful premiership. Wow, that's a long time, isn't it? It is a long time. And that was the day that uh, Darren Smith clobbered um, someone in the back of the head and missed out on the 98 grand final. Oh, oh that's sad. But look, what are we expecting here? Do we expect a win? Um, I mean, it's a pretty solid lineup that we're playing out there. I think we have a stronger lineup this year for finals than we did uh, last year. Mm. And like, at least you know, having Redden available gives us a proper ruck option, and we have quite a few more tools in there than than last year, and quite a bit more AFL talent, I think, as well in terms of. AFL experienced players, like more being a, a 
a normal feature in the SNFL team this year compared to last year where he was pretty much playing AFL every week as a bit of a, a boost for the team. So you'd expect us to have a pretty good crack, to be honest, and should come away with a win. Yeah, well, I mean, we've had a... I think at the end of last year, we had still a lot of completely raw players coming through, and um, there's actually been a lot of consistency this year, obviously, with um, uh, guys like Tom Collery and Mitch Harvey and whoever else. We had Paul Stewart back there most of the year, Kane Mitchell. Um, there's a lot of players that have just been on the list for a couple of years now, so that obviously is going to help the SNFL side to perform um, in terms of providing structure, but also just providing a bit of readiness and a bit of extra fitness um, on the field. So you'd have to say that, like me knowing nothing about West Adelaide, uh, as far as our second sides are concerned, this is probably one of the better ones. Um, if we had Archie or someone in there rather than the top side, which we should never do, um, we'd probably be a bit better, but I think we're probably good enough, surely. I think we've only got two first-year players at AFL level in the team, which is Howard and, and Palmer. Yeah, that's it. And, you know, we've got Sawford, who's absolutely killed it mm. uh, recently and everyone else has got a fair bit of AFL experience and we don't have that many uh, contract players we've got what one, two three four, five, six, six or seven maybe yeah maybe. that's pretty solid yeah. yeah that's pretty solid that's a pretty good lineup. we've got um, Mitch Harvey at full forward Andrew Moore He's going to be a, a key player out there. So will Sammy Cahoon. Kane Mitchell, he's picked up obscene amounts of the ball recently. Paul Stewart, he's always a, a pretty key player. As you said, Redden in the ruck, that's going to be a crucial effort. Um, you look at West Adelaide's lineup; they've got some pretty well-known names out there as well. Uh, Ryan Willett, Daniel Webb, they both played for Port Adelaide. Um, Paul Pleasure, Hardy Tuck, they've all got um, AFL experience, as does Brad Helbig. Um, and, of course, um, Adam Hartlett as well. So should be a pretty good game. We won by a couple of goals last week. Um, hopefully we can do um, get the same result uh, this week because uh, I'd love to go up against Woodville West Torrance, to be honest. Yeah, definitely. That'd be good. <laughs> because I absolutely hate them. But there you go. <laughs> and why, do you, why do you particularly hate them, Macca? Oh, I just hate them. I, was in a, I lived in a... Uh, Woodville West Torrens zone as a kid and um, you know pretty much everyone at my school you know barracked for the Eagles um, through that um, uh, Bruce Winter era of their success which didn't last very long Uh, so yeah it was uh, quite a lot of um, intense rivalry back then and I don't know I just have hated the Eagles ever since then to be honest I have no positive thoughts about them at all no, that's fair enough. I mean, I don't think many Port fans would have positive thoughts about them, but they probably just wouldn't have many negative ones. Yeah, yeah I'm quite ambivalent to Eagles, to be honest. Yeah, me too. Mm. Paul Stewart came from there, didn't he? That's pretty yes. much. Yeah, Paul Stewart, um, Jared Redden. Jared Redden. Brett Biglins. Uh, oh, there's a big name. <laughs> Shane Brewer. Shane Brewer did. Um, I'm running out now. <laughs> Did I say Jared Redden? I think so. Um, yeah, you did. Yes. I think that's, that's all I can think Matty of. Matty Broadbent. Oh, yeah, Brody. Yeah, yeah. Brett Evert started there. He did? He did? Yep. Oh, okay. Uh, Schultz. Listen, Schultz. I'm sure oh. someone... Yeah, Jay Schultz, of course. I'm yeah. sure someone might um, might correct me, but I'm pretty sure Brett Ebert 
Well, I know Brett Ebert started in the Eagle zones because I played against him in junior footy, but um, uh, I'm pretty sure we traded Brian Lake, who's now Brian Harris, and Joe Pedler, who won a, a premiership for the Eagles, um, to get the rights to Brett Ebert and bring him back to Albany. Yeah. Okay. Because I didn't think you need to... Like, at the junior level, I thought you just had to pay a fee and you could get the player transferred over rather than trading. Oh, this was in, like, under-17s, I think. Yeah, no, under-age, I think it was just some transfer fee, wasn't it? I don't know. Mm, I'm pretty sure there was a trade that was done, but as I said, I'm sure someone will correct me. Yeah, fair enough. Paper bags and money, I imagine. (laughs) That's it. That is it. Well, that's pretty much it for this podcast too, I would think. Yeah. It's been great doing previews this year for the last four rounds. It's been good. Thank you, Maka. It is. Of course, this will be the last time we do two um, podcasts for the week, so we'll be going back to one a week. Um, starting from next week, we'll continue through the SANFL finals, and then we've got, obviously, trade week. We've got uh, the draft period as well, and we'll do a bit of a draft uh, review at the end of the season as well. So still plenty of podcasts to come, um, but we will be um, slicing it back to one a week from now on. Looking forward to trade talk. How exciting. Absolutely. I love it. I love it. Third round up at Dixon. That'll do it. (laughs) Please. Please let that happen. That would be wonderful, but... I think we'll be giving up our first. And it's Dick's son with an S. Get that I right. Think, yeah, that's it. <laughs> like Tory Dixon. I think the thing I hate most about Trade Talk and Trade Week is that you suddenly have to listen to opposition fans. And you, who wants to do that? They're always a pain. Opposition the thing fans. that always gets me about Trade Week is the, uh, right, let's trade uh, Tom Cleary, Aaron Young, Jake Need, and uh, Darcy Byrne Jones for two first round picks. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Melbourne will do that, won't they? Or Carlton will do that, I reckon. <laughs> Probably. Oh, it. <laughs> oh, it is dear. a very Carlton thing to do. All right, people. Yeah. Until next time, come Port Adelaide. Come the power and the Magpies. Come the Maggies. Puts the ball across towards a teammate. Ritz hand pass, though. Slapped. And now needs away. Everything falling into place. Need the beneficiary running down towards the 50. Lines up. Bacon goal square. How about this? This is breathtaking.